the New Testament. We are at Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. Ephesians 5, verses 25 to 27. This also is God's holy word. We'll begin reading from Ephesians 5, verse 21 through verse 33. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that in reference that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. May we go to our God and we ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Our loving Father, we thank you that you indeed have given us a perfect standard for a husband's love for his wife, that you've given us our Lord Jesus and his love on behalf of the church. Father, we pray for husbands. We pray, Father, that we would be those who obey you at your word. Father, help us to see how important this is, not only for ourselves, but for our marriages, for our families, for our society, for the church. Father, we pray that you would guide us, that we might believe your promises, that we might believe that your Holy Spirit is the one who guides us and teaches us your ways. Father, we pray and thanks that your desire is that relationships would be redeemed, not just individuals. And we thank you, Father, that you've given us instructions about it. We pray, Father, that we would desire... uh, to be holy and blameless before you. We thank you, Father, for Christ's perfect work, that he is the one who sustains us. He is the one who redeems us by his blood. We thank you for the work of your Holy Spirit, that he is the one who breaks the power of sin in our lives. And he is the one who cleanses us from the pollution of sin. We pray, Father, that if any are here who have not committed their lives to Jesus Christ, we pray, Father, that they would all, we would all do so, that we would trust in him, that he indeed is our hope for forgiveness. Father, we pray that your son, Jesus, would be exalted and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. <coughs> you have some idea in a, in a physical war, in a battle, 
what the enemy considers to be of his greatest threat because those will be the things, those will be the areas that he attacks strongest. We see also that true in the spiritual life. And you look, when you look at our society, when you look at societies throughout history, the attacks have always seemed to be against men and husbands. Here we see the link that if you can damage, uh, if you can attack the husband, you will damage his marriage. If you damage the marriage, you will damage the family. If you damage the family, you will damage the church, and you will also damage society. When you look at Rome, many people have various theories of why Rome fell. Some of those theories uh, even boil down to it was the Christians. They, they were the ones responsible. But when you look at their society, you have accounts, even from secular people who said that there was the uh, basically the falling apart of marriage, that adultery and sexual license was rampant, that there was divorce, that the education of children, the proper training of children did not take place. And you look at all the societal ills that even secular scholars have said, you look back at Rome, this was the reason, these were the reasons for the, the damaging of their society and the downfall of Rome. When you look at our society, are we along that same path? You, you look at uh, the brokenness of marriage, the brokenness of home. You look at children being born out of wedlock. All these things point to, to how, hey, Satan is apparently doing a good job because he's attacking men, he's attacking husbands, and it's having an effect all around. Here, we think about how much you as men in the church if you're going to rule well in the church, you must first rule well in your home. How can you handle something bigger? How can you serve well in the church unless you're serving well and leading your household? Here, we, we think about how this book of Ephesians it presents our Lord Jesus as the glorious Savior. And he also speaks about his beloved bride, the church. And here, we acknowledge that there are some partitions within this book. Uh, chapters 1 through 3 in Ephesians is speaking about the theology, about what God has done for you. And chapters 4 through 6, we're supposed to be speaking about how you ought to obey uh, this God who has saved you, who has bought you by the price of his son. But strangely, all the practical, all the imperatives have everything to do the foundation of theology. And in fact, you look at uh, the relationship between Christ and the church, he's, he's talking about husbands, and even in this passage, verse 32, he says, this mystery is profound, but I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Meaning that some of the deepest things that he's teaching us in this letter are based upon, hey, we're talking about the practical as with husbands, love your wives. And then he talks about love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Here in this passage, we, we have an expansion uh, from verse 21, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So he addresses this in the various relationships. Now, some of you weren't present last week regarding the Christian wife and the duties. And maybe you might think, well, oh, oh boy, I missed that one. Now it's on you, uh, husband. Yeah, you ought to be listening up. And we realize that 
It's not our responsibility to get our spouse. Hey, you listen up. No, no, you, you, we must be the ones who are listening. That the duty is not that husbands, hey, wife, you listen to what's, what the word of God is saying. You listen to what the preacher is saying about this. No, it's our duty to obey God. The instruction is to husbands today. Uh, Lord willing, it will be to husbands next week also. Don't be surprised that there's a bigger section, a much bigger chunk for husbands. There's a reason for that. Here we see that the various relationships that he addresses, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. He begins with wives. Because he's talking about submission, he begins with wives. talks about submission. But he talks about the duties of husbands, that they don't get away scot-free. And, and then he talks about children. And then he talks about master and slave. And you, you think about how this addresses the very fabric of their society. And we think about how these are also relationships that affect our society. Here, we think about how important it is for families to be strong, for marriages to be strong. So we see this passage, knowing Christ's sacrificial and sanctifying love. Christian husbands are commanded to love their wives in the same way. Knowing Christ's sacrificial and sanctifying love, Christian husbands are commanded to love their wives in the same way. We'll look at this in three points. The first is the command for husband for the husband to love his wife. Second, the standard for the husband to love his, his own wife. And third, the goal for the husband to love his own wife. The first point, the command. We have that in the first part of verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. <clears throat> Here, we acknowledge that Ephesians 5.21 was the opening doorway, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. <clears throat> Normally, uh, you would think that the Apostle Paul in this situation would address men first. Men as the initiators, men as the heads of their households, the head of, uh, head of their relationship. But since the topic is submission, he addresses wives first. Here, we think about how important it is for the health of our society, for the health of the church. And last week we mentioned how in our American uh, contemporary culture, it is a shock that the scriptures would command wives to submit to husbands. You you think about some of these uh, major weddings, perhaps the royal weddings that in, in many of them, the vows uh, about submission on the part of the wife to the husband has been removed. And it's, it's glaringly absent. But we look back to the cultural context in the first century Greek culture, and the most shocking thing was not that wives would submit to husbands, but the shocking thing then was that husbands were actually commanded to love their wives. That was the shocking thing. Here, we think about the lies that Satan and society have regarding marriage. Think about how Satan can take a truth, take a a truth, take a half-truth, and and kind of blow it out of proportion, misapply it. Satan says, hey, husband, since you're the head, she needs to serve you. You as husband have to put her in her place. See, See, this is how marriages get damaged. Right? Satan comes in there and he takes things out of context. But here we ought to understand strength and power 
are not supposed to be used to subjugate people. Strength and power are used to serve people. I didn't make that up. This is the model that our Lord Jesus gives us, Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Here, you men, I'm dressing Christian men, Christian husbands. You have been bought by the blood of Jesus Christ. One has laid down his life for you to wash you clean. You have some idea what this looks like. Meaning, I've known the blessing of forgiveness. I've known the blessing of of being purchased, being owned by another. And this is Jesus Christ. And this role, this relationship that you have with Jesus, that is the primary model for you, even as you think about your service and your love for your wife. The husband's primary duty is to love his wife, not to put her into her place. Strangely, when you and I do the thing that God commands, it seems as that's the best way to help others to do what they're commanded. You see that? Where we're focused, hey, hey, what about what about him? What about her husband? He's not doing what he's supposed to do. Okay, well, why don't you do what you're supposed to do? Hey, what about my wife? She she's not she's not submissive. Hey, listen, you, you focus on loving your wife. Right. That's what God commanded you. Love her in a sacrificial way. Love her in a way that, uh, that sanctifies her. You focus on that. Let the Lord take care of your wife. Here, men are often told, if the wife is not what you want her to be, then leave her and find a better one. This is exactly what's happened in our society. There's not the concept of one not the concept of one. Here, when you look at this passage, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 33, essentially are two halves. The first half is husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That's the first half. That's what we're talking about this week. Lord willing, next week is husbands love your wives as you love yourself. Love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then, hey, for you who are really dense, think about how you take care of yourself and do that for your wife. Well, look at all the problems that she has. The kids don't obey her. Hey, wait a minute. That's your problem. That's not her problem. That's your problem. Do you understand that? Here, we, we think about a leg. Hey, we have this injury on the leg. The man doesn't look at his leg and say, leg, what's wrong with you? Cut the thing off. I'm going to leave this leg behind. No one thinks that way. You need that leg. You need two. You need two legs. No man thinks, hey, listen, if there's an injury in my body, I'm just going to hack this thing off. In the same way, you think about, can a man think about that regarding his wife? He must not. This is one body, not two. One body. If you're going to think in terms of this one body, it's no. That problem is actually my problem. I must deal with it. Her strengths are mine. Her weaknesses are mine too. If we think in such a way, then we win as a team. If you're thinking, hey, pastor, you don't understand all the problems she has. Those are your problems. How will you love her in such a way that those problems are repaired and covered? Here we think about the needs of men and women. The needs about men and women. That God commands in Ephesians 5, 22 to 33. 
God's commands to husbands and wives have something to do with the weakness of the one and the needs of the other. So think about this. Women need love to thrive as men need respect to thrive. If you know anything about women, you know anything about men. If you treat a woman with coldness, with harshness, even with neglect, she will shrivel up and dry. Just as in dealing with men, if you, if you deal with him in a manner of disrespect, he will shrivel up and dry. I describe this as disrespect is like kryptonite to Superman as it is to uh, a man. Meaning that kryptonite destroys Superman, right? Disrespect will cause a man to shrivel up and die. A lack of love will cause a woman to shrivel up and die. And you think also about the weakness. It's generally harder for men to show love. Men can show respect because respect has something to do with fear, right? Men respect strength. Men respect ability, right? You think about how men interact. You, you respect those uh, who are capable. You respect those uh, who, who are, are strong and have ability. It's harder for them to show love. Think about women. It's harder for women to show respect. There's all kinds of women who, who show all kinds of love to, to their husbands and to his family and serving him, but they have no respect for their men even when they do it. So you look at the weaknesses, what men need, what women need, and then you look at what men are, are weak at showing, what women are weak at showing, and the address here is not as if it's saying men... You don't need to respect your wives or, or wives. You don't need to love your husbands. No, we're, we're commanded that in other places. That, that's, that's part of it. But the difficulty is women showing respect to their husband and for men showing love to their wives. Here we think about how the command to love one's wife gets obscured. The definition of love has been redefined. It's been obliterated in so many ways and on so many levels. The world seeks to redefine love as romance. Here, the, the Greek language has uh, words for that. The word is eros, romance. And from it, we get the word erotic or eroticism. So this has to do with the sexual desire. So when well, the world defines love in terms of that, then, then it, we can understand why Feelings come and feelings go. But here, Paul uses the word agape. It is the command uh, that husbands are to love their wives, even as Christ loved the church, that the agape love is the description of God's love. And it, that's why it's appropriate that it describes Christ and his love for the church, because Jesus is God. This is God's selfless love used to describe his love for sinners, the undeserving, you and me. Feelings come, feelings go, but true love, true love continues. See, the world is strange where they, they extract the lay things out much farther. They talk about, oh, you found your soulmate, that we're going to be together forever. Well, you see that, wait a minute, it's like, you talk about being together forever, and then, then they get married, and then in seven years they get divorced. So it's like, well, your forever was just seven years. Now here, Scripture says that we are together until death. 
That, that there is no marriage in heaven. We're not going to be married in heaven. Scripture is clear about that. So let's not think about forever. Let's think about for the period of this life. See how the world likes to make things more extreme. They obscure the immediate. Don't do that. Here, think about God's willingness to bind himself under covenant. We spoke about covenants earlier from the larger catechism, questions 30 and 32. God covenants with sinners. He willingly binds himself in his word under oath. And it is also a pattern for marriage. You you have these young ladies. This man says he loves you. Feelings come and feelings go. The man who loves you will be willing to bind himself under a covenant with you. Here, this is what God expected of his people. And he rebukes them. He rebukes his people for breaking that. Malachi 2.14 Because the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth against whom you have dealt treacherously though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Here, you think about the book of Malachi. It was a covenantal lawsuit from God against his people Israel saying, hey listen, I'm bringing charges against you. A legal case. And He's coming to his people, the people of Israel, and he's saying, this is what you have done wrong. You've covered my altar with your tears, but he says, look at what you've done. You got married when you were young, and then you're telling me your wife got old, so that was grounds to leave her for a younger woman. So, so back then, they think about this midlife crisis. Hey, they had it back then too, except they just didn't go out and buy a Corvette, right? They just changed, changed the wife. This is a wife by covenant. That, that's not the conditions of the covenant. And when she gets old, then I can divorce her. No. This is until death do us apart. Here, we think about how important this command is. That God would say to husbands, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church. That it's our duty. You think about our duty. Is this important that you and I would fulfill the duty, the command that God has given us. God has given us various spheres. For you single men, those of you who aspire to be married, you should be thinking about, you should be thinking about your responsibilities to come, that you would love your wife. That men who are married, how important it is that we be, we be reminded of God's command that we ought to love our wives, even as Christ loved the church. It's a high calling. It's a high duty. It should not be looked upon lightly. We should not look to the world and say, you know what, I'm doing it better, uh, uh, 50% better, or mostly better than the rest of them. No. The comparison is Christ and his church. Here, we think about the second point, the standard for the husband to love his own wife. Second half of verse 25. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So as Christ loved the church, meaning husband, you are to love your wife even as Christ loved the church. So Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. His love for his bride, the church, this is your model to follow. You ought to make up your own model. You ought not to look at, hey, this is my uncle, this, this great man, or my grandfather, or whoever. 
there's good models, there's bad models. Even in good models, there, there's the bad parts of, of human models. This is the perfect model. This is the model that has no failure. This is the model that has no weakness. Is Christ's love for the church. We ought to be thankful that the Lord gives us good models in our lives. Because oftentimes it's, how does this Christ's love for the church, how does it manifest in real life? How do we carry that out each day? It's like children who grow up in broken homes where they see that something didn't work right. There is instruction there of, of the brokenness of, okay, that, that didn't work. But then oftentimes, the, the difficulty is where the feet have to touch the ground. Well, how do we work through these difficulties? Well, this is, this is where having an earthly model is helpful. But that perfect model is Jesus Christ and his love for the church. Perhaps you've said at times, but I love her plenty enough. <sighs> I love her plenty enough. Have you loved her as much as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? For all of us, I can say, we failed miserably in that comparison. Jesus loves his bride, the church, far more than we ever will. But we are to aim to that. Here, we think about, and gave himself up for her. It's a sacrificial love that Jesus has for his bride, the church. Some of you will say, well, wait a minute. What about submission? What about submission? Hey, uh, isn't she called to, to submit to me? Well, when we look at, we look at the instructions that the Apostle Paul gives, 1 Corinthians, is it 1 Corinthians 7? And he's, he's describing the, the benefit of, of singleness. It's saying that the, the single person, right, we shouldn't look down on singleness. This is what the Apostle Paul was saying in that passage. We ought not look down at singleness because his heart is undivided. He's fully devoted. He can be fully devoted to serve the Lord. And, and he's saying, well, there is a certain weakness in marriage. And, and specifically it says that his, his interests are divided. It's, there's the way of the world. It says that how he may please his wife. Did you hear that? It's saying that the married man, he has a responsibility how he may please his wife. But it flips it around also says, hey, for, for the married woman, how she may please her husband. So we think about men loving our wives. Is it the case that in our love for our wives, we should be seeking to please them? Seems like the scripture is saying, yes. Yes, it is. Here we think about the substitutionary death of our Lord Jesus. And he gave himself up for her. Romans 5.8 But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He doesn't say, you know what? After you became a Christian, after uh, you, you progressed in your Christian life, on your best day, Jesus died for you. No, it says that while you were yet sinners, while you were still his enemies, Jesus died on behalf of sinners. Jesus died for you on your worst day, not your best day. You think about, well, didn't I do something to earn it? Didn't I do something? Wasn't I better than the rest? We ought to understand that the good news of the gospel 
is that there was nothing different about you. You are by nature children of wrath. We must understand that if we're going to understand the gospel. We are by nature children of wrath. There's nothing different about us. Nothing better. Nothing meritorious. Let's cut all those things out as we understand the gospel. We read earlier how this is done. Ephesians 1, 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. How is it that Christ redeems his people? He redeems them by his blood, by his shed blood. Hebrews 10, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. It's not as if the the animal blood did anything. Otherwise, it wouldn't have to be repeated all the time. It was only pointing ahead to our Lord Jesus, who his death on the cross, his one death, he's done, he's resurrected, He ascends to heaven. He sits down at the right hand of God because his work is done. His blood was shed to pay for your sins. You think about the story of the Passover. The blood on the doorposts and the destroying angel passes over them. Passes over that household. This is exactly what's happening in the gospel. That Christ's blood shed for you. His blood has washed your sins away. So that the judgment of God passes over you. Because Jesus bore that wrath on your behalf. Here, I ask you the question. Are you trusting in Jesus Christ? Are you trusting in his righteousness? Are you trusting in his perfect sacrifice? You realize this is our only hope for forgiveness of sins. This is our only hope for glory. It's through Jesus Christ and him alone. And so here, men, specifically to you, if you are trusting in Jesus, that he is your hope for righteousness. And then when he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ has loved the church and gave himself up for her, then you and I ought to be saying, Jesus, you've bought me by your blood. I belong to you. I'm rightfully yours. Now, Anything that you command me to do, I must be willing to do. I must be willing to do with all of my might, all of my mind, all of my heart, all of my ability. I'm going to throw myself at it. We ask, well, well, God, can you change her first? The answer is no. He's commanded you to do something. You must do it. Here, you ask, has God called husbands to be like Jesus and to die on the cross for their wives? He has not called us to do that. He has called us to love them sacrificially, meaning that your love for your wife must cost you something. It must cost you something. Here, men, men often think in terms of, well, if ever uh, we were assaulted, I'd be willing to take a knife or a bullet for my wife. Well, that's good. I'm glad. I'm glad you ought to. Right? We ought to be willing to do that. But then here, the question that comes up is, okay, so that's the extreme. But what about the everyday? Meaning, are you, are you willing to give up your time? Are, are you willing to invest your effort? Are you willing to take out the trash? Because if you're not willing to take out the trash for your wife, then the question is, well, are you willing to lay down your life? Are you willing to take the bullet? I would think not. Here, if you're, if you're willing to lose sleep, 
for the sake of your wife. That's the sacrifice. Here, I, I remember a story. A story of uh, uh, my, my dad and my mom. <clears throat> I was a teenager, and uh, my, my mom was driving home, and uh, traffic, right, 5 p.m. traffic, and her car was having some trouble. So uh, this was back in Northern California, uh, two-lane expressway, two lanes on each side. You can think about this rush hour traffic. Her car was having trouble. She didn't think, I'm going to go off the expressway onto a corner and stop my car. She decided, I'm going to stop my car in one of those two lanes of the expressway. Okay? And then she was close enough. She walked home and told my dad, hey, my car broke down. He said, okay, uh, where is it? Is it? Is it on our driveway? He says, no, no, it's, it's, it's on this expressway. And he says, oh, no, Wait, why did you leave it there? And he says, I don't know. He says, well, I better go get it. So, so my dad goes there. He gets the car. Huge line backed up. Some guy, some guy actually comes and says to my father, hey, buddy, I, I stopped here because I wanted to make a point to tell you that you're very selfish. And it's very interesting that my dad... I don't think he said anything, but you know what? I didn't put this car here. My wife put it here. He just said nothing. He said, hey, buddy, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And in essence, my dad was covering for his wife, meaning he didn't pass it off. He didn't pass the blame off to his wife. He says, hey, I'm here to fix the problem. And you think about men, isn't that what we're called to do in many of these situations? We, we don't need to assign the blame to the right person. Part of our sacrifice is that whatever she did, that's my problem. That's my problem to deal with. You think about Jesus and his sacrifice. Oh, you lack righteousness? Well, too bad for you. No, that was his problem to deal with. He dealt with it. He dealt with it adequately. He dealt with it sufficiently. He dealt with it lovingly. Here, we, we think about sin. We think about how Christ deals with the guilt, the power, and the pollution of sin. In his sacrifice on the cross, at your justification, he dealt with the guilt of sin. Your guilt has been removed from you. That you have passed from death to life. This is guilt being removed. Meaning that if you feel guilty, well, the first statement is, well, have we repented of our sin? Have we forsaken it? That's the first question. Are we willing to give it up? We feel guilty. There might be a reason. It's because we're relishing it. We have to be willing to forsake the sin. We repent. We turn from our sins. We forsake it. We give it up. We hate our sins. We love Jesus Christ. And we think about the power of sin. Here we get to this in the next section. We think about the husband's love for his wife. Even in secular management... You think about the various models, secular management. Uh, an employee is failing, and uh, the, the manager may say, hey, this pers- person's lazy, incompetent, all this and all that, right? But even in secular management, the director or the VP is going to be asking the manager, hey, listen, manager, you, you, you're going to be pointing the fingers at this employee of yours. Are you providing everything that they need to succeed? Why is the person failing? Was there a lack of training? Have you, have you not allowed them the time to train? Right? Have you not provided them the resources? They're going to be asking that question, hey, it can't just be their fault. What is your responsibility in this situation? And if even a secular organization can think that way, here, when you ask ourselves, husbands, 
If there's anything lacking in the life of a woman, a wife, have you not provided her something for her to thrive? When you think about the rebuke that Nathan brought to David, that the rebuke was such that God had said, didn't I call you from the flock? And didn't I provide all these things for you as king? And he said, if it was not enough, I would have been willing to give you far more. As if God was saying, hey, listen, if, if you thought there was anything lacking in what I provided you in proof that my, I loved you, God was saying, I'm willing to give you that much more. There would have been more that I would have been willing to give you. And here we you think about a husband's love for a wife. We can say, hey, this darn foot of mine, we could cut it off. No, we need to ask a question. What are we not providing? Is there anything about, about my love that is insufficient? The question uh, a godly husband should be asking his wife regularly is, do you feel secure in my love? Do you feel secure in my love? Is there something that I'm not providing to, to you such that you're anxious, such that you're fearful? And then you think about the duties of the husband. You, you think about how Adam and Eve, there was, there was a failure as a team in the garden. We're told, 1 Timothy 3, that Adam was never deceived. Eve was deceived. And, and when, when Adam was hiding in, in the garden, hiding behind the trees or the, the shrubs, because he heard God walking, Adam's first statement, this woman that you gave me, you think about what was his duty. They were there as a team. That was God provided a helper. And she had certain weaknesses. He was talking to the serpent, right? And here, what was Adam doing? He was just sitting there like Johnny Bench, you know, saying nothing. Hey, they can talk, right? She could, she could talk to the serpent, right? Here, obviously, there wasn't death. There wasn't killing. But you think about dealing with snakes. I don't know about you. I don't like snakes. I don't like snakes, right? Here, if you go to places that they have poisonous snakes, I remember one of our missionaries, uh, one of my professors, was a missionary in Africa, and, and uh, he, he found a snake, and someone in his household says, hey, it's dead. And they're like, no, 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 no. <laughs> he says, I know, I beat it many times with the snakes. No, 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 no. The only time a poisonous snake is dead is when his head is separated from his body, and that thing is dead. And sure enough, he beat it a bunch. The thing wasn't dead because it was gone from where he had beat it. You think about what, what Adam should have been doing, protecting his wife. Hey, stop talking to that serpent. Don't talk to him, right? Washing of water with the word. Here we think about the attitude that the husband ought to have to his wife. This is why we read Proverbs 31. Proverbs 31, 11. The heart of a husband trusts in her and he will have no lack of gain. You think about what it means uh, to love your wife, what it means to be a husband. Nothing, nothing in this scripture says that the godly man micromanages his wife. No, you don't have the time for that. You don't have the time for that at all. Right? We, we ought to love them in such a way that, that they know that we trust them. This is, this is what the heart of a husband trusts in her. He trusts her, right? He's provided her what she's needed. He loves her. He cares for her. 
She's willing to take risks because she's not saying, well, shoot, if this thing fails, my husband is, is going to pound my face into the dirt because that's not how they interact. Here, you think about how his response to her affects his children. Proverbs 31, 28. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also, and he praises her. You think about how his love for her and his interactions with his family members. You know, back then, they, they often, it wasn't just uh, their children, the immediate family. They often had uh, relatives. Uh, you, you think about the life of Abraham. He had servants, right, in their household. And it was often the woman who, who gave instructions to all of them. And it was the duty of the husband to make sure that everyone in his household obeyed the wife. At times, including himself, right? Here, we, we think about how the warnings of Scripture are given for a reason. First, First Peter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Here, saying that your husband's, your relationship with your wife, it has some bearing on your relationship with God. You can't just say, compartmentalize, you know what, my wife, she's going through a tough time, and, and I'm just going to mistreat her, because that's just one avenue. I, I, I can still have a good relationship with you, right God? And here, the Lord is saying, hey, if you're not living in an understanding and a loving way with your wife, your prayers are going to be hindered. Not only your prayers, her prayers. Do you like it when your prayers are not answered? When you feel like you're not being heard by God? I don't. We shouldn't live in such a way that would bring that about. So that's the second command, or the second point, the standard for husbands to love their wives. We have the third point, the goal for the husband to love his own wife. In verses 26 and 27 that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Here we see that for Christ, for the husband, the immediate goal in loving the church and loving your wife, verse 26, that he might sanctify her, we think about sanctification. The word, uh, the concept is used in various ways in the scriptures. There is definitive sanctification. The, the fact, the act of being set apart by God for holy use. This is God's purpose or design. That, that you, your life, has been set apart. 1 Corinthians 1, 2. To the church of God which is at Corinth to those who have been sanctified in Christ Jesus, saints by calling, with all who in every place call in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Saints by calling, sanctified in Christ Jesus, set apart. So this is God setting you apart in your life. When you think about the description in Ephesians 4 about how the Gentiles uh, walk in their sensuality, in, in the darkness of their thinking, in all these methods 
and ways. We're being told we've been set apart from that. This is what happens in the gospel. That God sets us apart from the ways of the world. Here, we think also about progressive sanctification. Progressive sanctification. The second aspect of sanctification has to do with progress and change in your life. Here, we think about the Christian life. We would like to think it as, uh, as, these, as a blue chip stock that the value only goes up. But we admit, even with blue chips, sometimes the value drops. And in your life, sometimes uh, it's not always progress, right? It, life becomes difficult. It takes time for you to learn. You need the two by four on the head. And so life goes on. Here we think about the power of the Holy Spirit. So we talked about the guilt of sin. Jesus dealt with that with justification. We have the power of sin. That Jesus deals with that in definitive and also in progressive sanctification. That the power of sin is broken. (laughs) That you mean I can actually obey Jesus. Well, this person who was once walking in darkness is now living according to the light. This is the power of sin being broken in your life. Here we think also, we think also of the progress of godliness. It's not to stall or come to an end in the Christian life. Perhaps you're thinking, well, I'm planning contempt content with where I am now. Is this complacency? There shouldn't be. There shouldn't be a complacency. We shouldn't be, we shouldn't be satisfied with where we are now. We should desire holiness. You think about coasting. Well, why is it that uh, riding a bike is more fun than running for people? Is because there are times when you can coast on a bike. Like when the wind's behind you, you have a tailwind, that's good. Or when you're going downhill, that's good. And, and maybe when it's perfectly flat, you could coast a little bit, right? but not, not long. But you think about the Christian life. If you're coasting, you're probably going downhill. Right? You only coast when you go, you, you only coast long going downhill. There's no coasting. It's an uphill battle. Here, think also about this means by which God uses. Verse 26, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Oftentimes people think about this and they say, oh, that refers to baptism. Well, in some ways it does. It's what baptism symbolizes. But it's not as if baptism saves us. Certain people think that baptism saves, right? Even certain Protestants think about baptismal regeneration. It's not saying that. Baptism is symbolized by this, but it's the washing of water with the word. Here, we think about how important God's word is for us. God speaks to us in his word. He gives us direction in life. Here, we think about Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. We should be meditating upon the word all the time. There should be a central role for the word of God in your life. If you're going to thrive, you're going to grow. The word of God 
must be part of your life. How large of an influence does the Word of God have in your life? Do you prioritize it? Do you plan your life around it? Or do you fit it in when you can? You see, there's a big difference. If we're going to plan our lives around it, or if we're going to fit it in when we can. It's not only the reading, the the personal reading of the Word, but it's time that your family spends reading the Word, setting aside time, prioritizing time to hear the Word of God preached. This is part of your spiritual life. It's part of your spiritual growth. That the Word should be central in your life. How do you respond to the fears and the doubts that the world raises? Is our answer to cower? Or is our answer to say, wait a minute, what has God promised me in his word? If, if you see other people living in fear and doubt, and, and you might think, well, I, I should be living in fear and doubt too. But then we look at the scriptures and problems of anxiety fear and doubt, Jesus has addressed all of those. He, he didn't say that we should live like the world in fear and doubt and anxiety. We should be living by faith. Faith helps to eliminate fear, doubt, and anxiety. Here we think also about the eternal goal. The eternal goal. In verse 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Here you think about some of these elaborate weddings. Think about these elaborate weddings. Did, men, did you know there, that there are more than eight colors on, on, a, on a color palette? I heard, we think about eight colors. And, and there's one white. No, no, there's not one white. There's like hundreds of whites. Did you know that? Hundreds of whites. All you need to do is think about, think about brides' dresses. It's not just one white. I mean, what color is that? It's white. No, no, there's hundreds of whites. You think about how, how terrible it would be if, if a bride, in her dress, that it was wrinkled. Hey, I, I just put the dress in a box and I threw it in my trunk and, and it came out all wrinkled. This would be terrible. Or, or what about... You think about the woman is wearing high heels under that white dress. The high heels, I don't know how much they cost. No one ever sees them because of the train of the dress is hiding the, the high heels. They're not visible. But you know what? She says it's important. So it's important. It is important. And we think about this without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. That she might be holy and without blemish. This is presenting God presents us as perfect. It's not as if we can be perfect in this life, but is this the goal that you and I have? That one day, this this progress in the Christian life, that it will be completely, I mean, you get this the vertical line, right? The step function, so to call, that the sin will be completely removed from us. Philippians 3. 13 and 14, brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. 
Here, the Apostle Paul, here, he's advanced farther than all of us, but he's saying he hasn't taken hold of it. He's desiring it. We should desire that. We should desire that for ourselves. If there's any sin, any duties that we're neglecting, we should seek to do it. And then as husbands, as any, if there's anything lacking in your wife, you ought to see that as that's something that God has called me to deal with. I must love my wife in such a way that she will also join me in, in serving and worshiping and honoring our Lord God. Here, we think about this word and how it is an encouragement to us. To all Christians, consider your calling from God. As God called you to continue chasing after the ways and the values of the world, or has, you, has he called you to follow the Lord Jesus? Realize that God has called you to a far better life, and you must be reminded about the costs. <clears throat> you must take up your cross daily and follow Christ. He's called us to a better life. He's redeemed us from our old ways. Here, to husbands, do not think that your love for your wife is more than adequate because the standard for you and I to love our wives is as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. <clears throat> Here, we think about some practical things. Recommendation. Talk to your wife. Don't just talk at her. Listen to her. Desire to meet her needs. Encourage her. Admonish her. Correct her as needed with the word of God. May the word of Christ richly dwell in you. That you first must be in the right place. You must be in the word. You must be in prayer. Here, even men who are married to unbelieving women. Does this promise apply to them also? Yes, it does. Does an unbelieving wife ex uh, exclude a man from having to love his wife? No, it doesn't. In fact, we're told that he ought to do it all the more so that she might come to covet the love of Jesus Christ. You know, we, we think about how the, the submission of a wife was supposed to be a picture and a, a, an image of the gospel. Part of our witness is that wives submitting to their husbands, to their own husbands, this was part of a picture of the gospel. So also to husbands, your love for your wife, this is a testimony before a watching world that you trust in Jesus Christ. It tells, it tells the world what you believe about Jesus. Here, it's also a reminder that men, your love for your wife is essential for your own Christian growth. And we ought to do it because Jesus commanded it. That should be enough for us. Yet he is one who has given us exceedingly great promises. The attacks indeed are great against men. But we see that the blessings indeed are great too. That we should desire obedience. We should desire humility. We should desire to love our wives, even as Christ loved the church. Here we go to our God together in prayer. <clears throat> our Lord God, we thank you, Father, for you have